The interviews and discussions on this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. Hello and welcome to this Stockhead podcast. I'm your host, Peter Strachan. Today, we're delighted to welcome back Brandon Munro, who's the Chief Executive and Managing Director of Bannerman Energy. Now, Brandon is a senior figure in the uranium sector. He's served as co-chair of the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Fuel Demand Working Group and contributed to the United Nations uh, Economic Commission for Europe on um, uranium matters. Uh, Now, Bannerman's Tango project is located in Namibia and Brandon knows that nation very well because he lived there for five years. The company has just updated a pre-feasibility study, so we thought it was an excellent time to get Brandon back in and run us through the findings of this study, very comprehensive, and tell us uh, what's planned for the uh, run-up to delivering a bankable feasibility study next year. So welcome, Brandon. Thanks very much, Peter. It's great to be back on. Firstly, uh, Brandon, the the thing that really uh, sticks out to me about the project is how close it is to infrastructure. You're basically 30 kilometres away. It's like being from here to Rockingham, from Perth to Rockingham, away from uh, your project. Yeah, we're very much blessed with that in a couple of respects, Peter. First of all, being in Namibia in southern Africa itself is an infrastructure blessing. And uh, not long ago, it was rated number one in the continent for infrastructure in a uh, in a mining survey, the Fraser Mining Institute survey. And it's very obvious for people who've been there, the roads are in amazing condition, particularly for Africa. There's rail past the project, there's uh, main roads, power, uh, water pipelines past the project. And really the main challenge that we face in that arid environment is water but there's excess capacity in a desalination plant just on the coast. Uh, But the other thing that's really nice about it is the local town of Swakopmund is very, very special. I had the privilege of living there, as you say, for a period of time. And it's a lovely place. It's, uh, It's a tourist destination in itself. And to have that as your local mining town um, I hope I'm not going to offend too many people by saying, but I reckon it might even be a notch up from Rockingham. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And uh, lots of diamonds uh, along the coast there and lots of other things there. So it is uh, a bit of a tourist destination. So can we start at the top? Um, now, the project's got uh, reserves, quite substantial reserves and resources. Can you just run us through what those are? Of course, we've just restated the resources and we've now published a maiden all reserve for the Itango 8 project, which is distinct from the original Itango project, and we'll come on to that. So total Itango project resource is £207.8 million. Um, Now, that is enormous. That's very big by world standards and certainly a world-class ore body. Within that project, we now have a maiden ore reserve of about £60 million, and um, that forms the basis of the 15-year mine life that we've just published by the PFS for a Tango 8. Now, what's um, really important for investors to understand is this is an ore reserve that's all in one place. It's not an accumulation of various projects. 
um, that ore body is in fact open at depth, so it will grow substantially uh, in the future. And we also have satellite ore bodies uh, in the vicinity well within trucking distance as well. So it really boasts a world-class enormous ore, reserve, uh, ore resource, and now we've got the Otango 8 project progressing through uh, feasibility study, which enables us to get into production sooner and scale up once we're already profitable. Yeah, that, it's, it, it's pretty immense. And I calculate 94,000 tonnes of uranium oxide uh, in that uh, resource. And as you say, it, it goes on and on at depth. You, you just basically have to put a price of uranium oxide around a, a pit and, and the pit can go, uh, can be massive, can be huge. Well, that's right. And that's, that's the, really one of the key aspects of the investor appeal for our company, Bannerman Energy. It's the leverage that we can offer to an improvement in the uranium price. And that leverage continues to give in the sense that, as you say, uh, if you start applying more optimistic scenarios for uranium and nuclear power demand moving forward, you can start to access uh, greater and greater quantities of ore in a conventional sense, in an open pit mining sense. And uh, we saw that with the neighbouring Rossing uranium mine, for example. Uh, Rio Tinto started that mine in the 70s and its original mine life was 16 years. They've just celebrated their 45th anniversary. So these very large open pit mines do continue to give. And in a sector that relies on long-term timeframes, our customers are building nuclear power plants that will run for 80 years it's very important to have that longevity and that life as well as the expansion capacity and potential that uh, interests investors. Yeah, so this pre-feasibility work that you've done, you've plugged in uh, for a base case uh, $65 a pound for uranium oxide and that gives uh, generates basically about a, a Australian dollars 300 million net present value and an 8% discount. So that's a pretty attractive sort of option uh, and I think most people are sort of have got $65 a pound on the horizon for um, for uranium in the not too distant future. So can you just run us through the 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 whole process from mining through to leach pads and and how you you're um, extracting the uh, the oxide yeah it's conventional and that's the first thing to note uh, the ore body outcrops which is very helpful it means that we've got a low stripping ratio of 2.1 and it's conventional truck and shovel uh, we have operated a heap leach demonstration plant uh, for many years in fact we built it in 2014 to demonstrate beyond any financing doubt that this ore body is astonishingly amenable to heap leaching. And that's because it's granitic in nature. Uh, the material very much looks like what you used to put in the bottom of your fish tank. So there's no silting, there's no clays, uh, the fines don't interfere with the leach extraction. Um, but also the nature of the particular uh, geological event that we're working with here is it it's um, very low in acid-consuming gang materials. Um, so we've consistently demonstrated in our pilot plant uh, in the heap and uh, very effective recoveries plus 90% uh, through the consumption of anything between 
um, 12 and 14 grams per um, kilograms per ton of acid. Very, very low. And uh, compared to other projects, um, sometimes it's even an order of magnitude lower. No, that's an incredibly good recovery rate from a, you know, just a heap leach. And I think probably it's, I guess the granite's quite hard. So you've got a three stage crushing circuit. Uh, but the benefit is, as you say, there's no um, clays and so forth. And so the thing recovers very well. Exactly. And it can be crushed down quite coarse as well. Um, the heap leach residue will have a P80 size of 5.3. Millimeters, so we don't need the fine grinding, which is where the electricity and the expense often comes in. Um, so it goes, uh, as you say, it uh, it gets mined, of course, and then through a three-stage crushing process, um, relatively simple out to the heap leach, and then what we've done in the last few years is reorganised the back end to take advantage of newer technology that's become available in the last five years so that we have incorporated an IX and nanofiltration recovery circuit. And we found that to be very effective, um, only marginal additional acid consumption, which is helpful and also has a lot of environmental benefits to going down that path as well. So IX is ion exchange. Um, so your main costs there are sulfuric acid that you've mentioned and, and water, which has to come from a desal plant. That's right. So on the processing side, that's correct. And then on the mining side, it is mining itself. Yeah. So mining and processing roughly account for the same cost per finished pound of product. Mm. But your power costs are incredibly cheap. Well, look, they are. We're very blessed in Namibia. Uh, we have clean emissions-free power that we will source from a hydropower station up on the northern border with Angola, um, the Ruakana power station. And we also draw power from South Africa via the Coburg nuclear power station, um, which is in Cape Town and has big transmission lines running up the coast. So not only is it cheap power, uh, but it's also clean power and reliable. And of course, we're also looking at opportunities to incorporate an element of solar. And that makes economic sense, first and foremost. Uh, it obviously has some advantages in today's ESG world. But first and foremost, we believe in an arid desert environment that has about 364 and a half days of um, dry sunshine, that uh, the capacity for solar to assist with project economics or will be good. Now, the, given that space is moving so quickly these days, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that work at a PFS stage, and that's something we'll look at closely in the DFS. Yeah, in an area where it seldom rains and even a cloudy day would be an anomaly, that uh, sort of solar is going to be a bit of a no-brainer, I think, at the end of the day. That's right, and it's really just a question of how do you balance that power, Yeah, um, and that's where the, the math will need to come into it. It will be a 24-7 operation, so we'll need power during the evening as well. Yeah. So, Brandon, the project beyond your uh, administration offices and maintenance facilities, will there be need for a, a camp or accommodation or will people just uh, drive in, drive out from, um, from townships? Well, exactly. They can drive in, drive out. Um, as you pointed out, we're only about 20 k's from Spockermond. That's the town that... Uh, expanded in the 70s because of the Rossing uranium mine. So there's a very large uranium influence in that town 
it's uh, swelled a little bit since the Husab uranium mine was built. And of course, um, Langer Heinrich has contributed as well. Both of those mines uh, bus in, bus out. Uh, for example, the Langer Heinrich mine, that's a, that's a fair commute though. Um, it's a good 90 minutes out to that mine. Um, so we've got the real advantage when it comes to hiring people that it's, it's a short drive uh, from Swakoman. So that's extra time that people will have with their families. Yeah. So, and you've also got Walvis Bay, which is a deep water port, and, uh, and that's where all of your acid comes in and your product goes out. Exactly. And difficult to overemphasize how important it is to have a port that's been exporting uranium from for 45 years and more recently from three distinct mines. It, it helps our business in so many different ways, um, right down to financial ways such as the frequency of class seven ships that are coming into the port means that our working capital requirements will be a lot less. And being um, a very short trucking distance from that port decreases transport costs and a whole host of um, permitting issues. Um, there, there's many, many reasons why being so close to a uranium exporting port makes life a lot easier and makes our project more robust. And I think the other thing about the project that I noticed is, that, as you say, it's all plain vanilla. There's nothing really um, exceptional about it. It's just crush it up, uh, make the uh, the pads and, uh, and the normal solvent extraction or, in this take, case, iron exchange to uh, remove the, the product. So um, just can you tell us about how the leach pads are actually going to be constructed to contain the pregnant liquor and how, how does that work environmentally? So the heap leach pads themselves are, of course, lined. And that's not only for environmental reasons, but because that's where the valuable product is. So we don't want any seepage of pregnant leach solution or rinse solution whatsoever for, for various reasons. Um, so that's a well-worn path. You know, heap leaching has been extensively deploy, deployed around the world. Um, the material, once it has uh, finished its rinsing cycle, is then moved from a, by using a front-end loader to a Ripios pad. Um, the Ripios pad is uh, constructed in such a way where the heap leach residue or the Ripios um, is then loaded uh, uh, over the life of the mine um, and will be covered with waste rock at the end. Um, that material is relatively chemically inert and the material with which the Ripios pad is constructed is obviously sourced so that it will um, react and neutralise any potential for chemicals um, and uh, any acid leaching that might come out of that Ripios. But the, the point is also water is expensive, as you say. So we would be dewatering that Ripios as much as we possibly can, as well as rinsing all of the valuable uranium out of it. So uh, to certainly to a layperson, that material that goes onto the Ripios pad is chemically inert. Yeah, and I think that it's a point to be to be made is that you recycle every last drop of uh, water and, and liquor because it's a uh, vital ingredient to the. You don't want to lose reagents, firstly, and secondly, as you say, it's expensive. Quite right. The, the it's when the environmental factors and the financial factors work perfectly in unison. 
Yeah. So with the study that's been done so far, Brandon, you've estimated a capital cost to get running. I think it's 274 million US uh, for this 8 million tonne per annum operation. Correct. Yeah, and so with the bankable feasibility study, as you go down, uh, that'll have to be adjusted for any changes in costs for steel and all of that, but it shouldn't be too much, you know, either side of that number, do you think? Well, that's that's what we believe. And one thing that you will see when you compare the numbers between our scoping study, which was released a year ago, and the PFS, is they are remarkably similar. And even the small increase in the capital cost from the scoping study, apart from that being within scoping study tolerances in the first place, you can trace very easily where that's come from. And in many instances, it's uh, decisions that have been made to uh, further de-risk the operating risk associated with the mine. Um, And another example with that would be, for example, the Stripping ratio has gone up a little bit because we have adopted a dual ramp system. We decided that one of our key strengths of this project is the simplicity, as you mentioned, but also its technical reliability and its relatively low technical risk. And for a nuclear power plant who don't really know much about mining but are very focused on supply certainty, they do send due diligence teams out to assess that very thing. How reliably will this mine produce? How much risk is there associated with the ramp up, etc.? So we wanted to make sure that when they do that, there's no areas where they could think it could pose a risk. And one of those was a dual ramp into the northern and central pit. Gives so you the redundancy. numbers were very similar to the scoping study. Uh, the uh, the cost the cash cost, including royalties, has come down a little bit, which is very satisfying. And that is, obviously, it gives us confidence going into the DFS that that we can expect uh, numbers in the order of what we've seen from the PFS. But it also shouldn't be surprising because we have done a DFS on this project before. Um, It's just that we've done it to a much larger scale. So, so many of the inputs that we've been using have already been established to a definitive level and just required a little bit of adjustment. Yeah. So thanks, uh, Brandon. Last time you came in, you you uh, you spoke in depth and in great detail about the uranium market. But so we won't dwell on that. But uh, precise yeah, numbers are difficult. But suffice to say that some of the uh, uranium miners and project developers are actually started buying yellow cake themselves because they see the price rising over the next year or two as uh, demand from new reactors. Uh, follows through, and, and we're certainly seeing support out of the US market for them at the moment for the low emitting power technologies, including um, uh, nuclear power. Look, I think there's no question that we are seeing the next nuclear renaissance right now. The decarbonisation imperative around the world, but in particular with all of the world's largest economies, has produced. Um, a change to the way that industry and policymakers think about everything, and I mean everything. And nuclear just offers such a superior solution to growing economies and particularly third world economies who on the one hand are expected to decarbonise, but on the other hand, they're managing all of the challenges associated with rapid growth, urbanisation, 
um, the improvement in living standards of their people, um, on top of the electrification of everything that is increasing electricity demand for developed countries. So nuclear power offers, first of all, the opportunity to achieve decarbonisation without deep compromise on those economic and social objectives, but it also offers deep penetration into some of the hard-to-abate industrial processes where to try and achieve decarbonisation with, say, uh, intermittent renewables will be exceptionally difficult. And we haven't even started talking about hydrogen production from hot electrolysis, which can be ad adapted to the waste heat from nuclear power and how much more efficient that is than currently available technologies with cold ele electrolysis, which of course have to be utilised if you're um, directing solar or wind power into an electrolysis circuit to produce hydrogen. So there's tremendous potential at the moment. And um, that, as you say, has impacted policymakers in the US. Um, I'm not so optimistic that it's going to make an awful lot of difference in Australia. But then again, the fact that we're even having a debate in Australia is something that I couldn't have imagined three or four years ago. So I, I think it's a tremendously exciting industry. And I'm just so proud to be on the front end of that in the uranium sector. Well, thanks for coming in today, Brandon. I think that uh, you've demonstrated that uh, that Bannerman Energy is really a very good option on the future for uh, uranium price and the uranium uh, power industry going forward. And we wish you well over the next 12 months as you tighten up those numbers and, and come th uh, through with a bankable study, which uh, will be able to be funded uh, next year. So thanks once again to coming into Stockhead for this uh, podcast. Thank you very much, Peter.